0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 175, and today's guests are Jessica Kim and Steve Lee, co founders of Ionicare. Jessica and Steve are serial entrepreneurs. They both started successful companies separately in other industries, but it was their personal experiences that brought them together to build Ionicare. If you've ever had to care for a loved one who is ill, then you know firsthand how challenging it can be on so many levels. You need help, but you don't want to be a burden to others, and there are challenges around coordinating the actual care. In the US alone, there are over 43 million family caregivers, and over 90% of the care happens in the home, not in a hospital. While well, Ionicare was built to support these caregivers, it is a mobile app that provides the emotional and practical support they need. The creation of Ionicare is a perfect example of entrepreneurs who find a real-world problem through their own experiences and realize that something needs to change and it becomes their passion to create the solution. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Steve and Jessica's background and entrepreneurial stories, including scaling a consumer subscription business to an exit for Jessica, and Steve's experience taking a video ad tech company public, the details behind their personal experiences, caregiving for a family member, and why they decided to take action. A deep dive into Care in terms of their business and product, what the Just Show Up movement means, advice for founders on hiring during different stages of a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, we just launched VentureFizz User Profiles. It is a new feature that gives you access to personalized content and job seeker tools. To create a user profile and to maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to VentureFizz.com backslash login. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jessica and Steve. Steve and Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So we're going to talk about Ionicare, which is uh, you know, it's a very meaningful product for many reasons. Um, you know, we're, we're recording this in the COVID-19 uh, world right now, which is uh, definitely a unique one, but it's also a product that, you know, anyone that has, you know, you know, worked, you know, someone in your family's had, you know, an illness, my dad had a stroke, so I can definitely relate to the solution that you're providing. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot about that. But before we get into that, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, you are both, serial entrepreneurs, yet what I thought was unique about your backgrounds is the fact that you've built companies in multiple industries. It's not like you became a domain expert and kind of stayed in your lane, going deeper into one particular segment. You know, Jessica, you've done baking, consumer, now healthcare. Steve, you've done video advertising, healthcare. So what advice would you give to other founders of just kind of like figuring it out and going for it?
1: Yeah, I think we're a testament that you can totally do a startup Uh, in the new space. Uh, It's often actually an advantage because you bring in a fresh perspective as an outsider, Uh, but it's definitely not easy. I mean, you really need to commit to doing the hard work to become that expert. And I think a way to do that is to surround yourself with the right people to help you get there. Um, I think that means starting with the right partner, uh, someone that's really complimentary, fills gaps uh, that you might have uh, and that you work well with. Uh, really important uh, to have someone that brings a different perspective. Uh, can divide and conquer. Someone you can work with for that. Um, it's, I think it's really also important to have the right advisors that do bring that domain knowledge. Uh, and I feel really fortunate. Uh, you know, my in both my startups, uh, I've had great co-founders and advisors. So I think that's that's the part that's really helped.
2: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think. You know, working with Steve um, has been a core strength of this venture, for sure. I mean, we went through a pretty extensive process of just making sure that we didn't just you know, get along, but that we were super aligned on our goals, our morals, our work ethic, our work styles. Uh, we went through 75 questions that we really dug really deep, um, and it really just set the foundation of this whole venture, and absolutely, we create better solutions together. Um, But I think my other big piece of advice is, um, you know, really understand the people you are serving, like be obsessed with your end user and see the human elements behind each part of your operations. Because sometimes we get so focused on industry or business model and all those things constantly change, Um, but they're absolutely critical, you know, elements to understand it well, but Ultimately, the purpose of the entire venture is to serve people and to solve their problems and meet their needs. And then people are actually the ones executing all of the operations to make that happen. And so I always say, you know, start with the who, start with the who first. And then it's the what and the how and the when are all tactics that will follow. Um, and I even go as far as saying, love your customers, like love your people. And we don't use love often in business, but if you learn so much about them, that you then start to care about them. And then that care turns into love. That's when true innovation and, um, you know, that's where you create solutions that really sustainably allow them to flourish. And so just focus on the who before you figure out anything else.
0: That, that's great advice. I've never heard it phrased that way. Like the love I think is super important. Like, you know, I, my background is recruiting and then, you know, mm. you know, started venture fizz as a side project that morphed into something a lot Larger than I ever thought I would be doing and I think the reason why it has been successful is the love and passion is there Like I really deeply care about, you know People that are using the platform and then the companies we're we're helping with hiring and connecting, you know, amazing talents amazing companies. so Well, let's let's talk about your background. So, um, Steve Why why don't you kick things off with you know, what were you like? You know, where were you born? What were you like as a child? Like, you know, just those foundational questions education.
1: Yeah, sure um I grew up in Hong Kong and Ohio, so two places that couldn't be more different. Um, my father was a professor in engineering. My mom was a teacher before uh, focusing on the kids. And growing up, uh, it's just probably my genes, my dad's engineering background. I love making things work. Um, and I got into computer programming pretty early. Um, I did a lot of stuff your first computer? So it was an Epson uh, IBM compatible PC. Mm. It's so weird, Epson was lo- known for uh, printers. But uh, that's that's what we got. So started in GW Basic, uh, that was, uh, and then I came it came bundled with all the IBM compatible computers, uh, and then moved on. Uh, I think I did Pascal, and then C, and even assembly language. Um, you know, I had as a hobby um, this this uh, just taking a copy protection and trying to break it by cracking into the assembly <laughs> language. Um, so it's just a fun thing I did, um, but. Um, you know when i got to high school i can't really explain this but i got really fascinated by speech recognition this whole concept in high of school in high school wow um, you know starting different projects um there's just this notion of being able to talk to machines uh, was really exciting to me so that brought me um to mit and to the research labs at mit that was working on speech recognition and uh, i did my bachelor's and master's there um, I feel really fortunate um, to have been able to do that and focus on this area um, because I think speech recognition is where a lot of today's modern AI techniques were first applied and proven. All the pattern recognition, statistical modeling techniques. And that's been you know, really valuable everywhere I've been, uh, including now at Ionicare as we think about injecting that layer of intelligence to help uh, caregivers.
0: Jessica, how about your background?
2: Yeah, well, I'm a Jersey girl through and through and proud of it. <laughs> I was born and raised in Jersey, um, the youngest of three kids. And so I was always coined at the ham of the family. Um, my dad was a psychiatrist, which had a huge influence on me. Um, you know, he made me read books like Daniel Goldman's Emotional Intelligence when I was in high school and was just constantly just shaping my mindset and self-confidence to to just believe that I could achieve anything if I believed in myself, you know, worked really hard and just focused on helping others. And so, um, you know, my both my parents were amazing. My mom was incredible. She managed my dad's medical office, and so self taught herself like, you know, account of, accounting and medical billing, um, as well as just managing our whole family. So I saw really early on as a female like how you can really integrate that effectively. Um, but you know, growing up, I just, I love people. Like I just love being around people. I was president of my class all four years in high school. Um, you know, I was a camp counselor. How did, how did you get
0: become president of your class freshman year? That, that was impressive when I learned that about you. Like, how did you
2: <laughs> well, each grade has its own student council. And so I was like, you know, president that freshman year. And then I ran again, sophomore year, you had to run every year. I remember making little fortune cookies saying like, say yes to Jess. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I was doing a little driving there. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just, I, you know, I also, one of the most um, significant experiences was also being a camp counselor for special needs kids. Um, when I was in high school and, you know, I went to Juilliard pre-college, I played viola. It was a big part of my life, but instead of, instead of solo performances, I love being part of a quartet. And so I just think throughout my upbringing, it's always been this, um, interweaving of interactions with people. And I've always just been fascinated by how our culture, how our upbringing, how our situational experiences literally just shape the way we interact and see the world. And so I went to Brown University and I majored in anthropology.
0: That's what (laughs) Um, I was like. I was like, okay, how did that come about? Because i am always fascinated, like, how did someone choose that major?
2: I know. You know, I really credit my dad where he didn't force me to do anything that seemed very practical at that time. He was just (laughs) like, Do what you love and do it well. And I was just like, I just love people. I just want to understand cultures. I thought I was going to graduate and you know study tribes all over the world. Honestly, until I realized, you know, how do you get a job to do that? <laughs> um, but honestly, I really believe that the training um, of anthropology is really the core of how I approach any business problem. Um, it's you know how I really dig into consumer insights you know, sure, you can track clicks, but what's behind the click? Like, why did I click? Why didn't I click? What are the emotions behind that, you know? Um, And then as well as leading a team, like it's all about understanding people and motivations. Um, And especially with Ionicare, more than any other venture, this is where family caregiving is one of the most um, intense and intimate human experiences that anyone could go through. So until you really understand all the nuances behind that, you cannot create a solution or a business, you know, to solve it. And so anthropology is the core of just how I operate.
0: So Steve, you you talked about your interest in uh, speech recognition at an early age in high school and studied that at MIT, and then you did that professionally. So what were you working on? What was uh, speech recognition like then? Because you were, like, there's a major, you know, like speech recognition in boston is no joke there's a rich history of innovation and still to this day of people working on it
1: totally i think this is the honestly the speech recognition capital um, yeah to your point i mean after my time at MIT, i really wanted to commercialize speech technology and to be at the forefront of that this is the late 90s so before siri before echo um, and the technology was just getting to the point where it was commercially viable that was just really, really exciting to me. Um, so I went to work for uh, Mike Phillips. I think he's been on this podcast. It was, yes. Yeah, uh, he's started Sense in uh, a couple of speech recognition companies before that. Mike, uh, in the mid-90s, was a research scientist at MIT in the same research lab I was in. And he licensed some of the code and started uh, a company called SpeechWorks. So I went to work for him at SpeechWorks. And I had this amazing experience there, learned so much. Everything about uh, SpeechWorks was amazing. There was a great... Uh, there was a great culture, people, mentors, technology. Um, and I got to be kind of the startup within the startup. Um, they shipped me out to Asia uh, and I basically helped them set up the operation in um, all the Asian countries. Um, and so this experience was what really gave me the startup bug uh, because I not only got the taste of the startups, but like being the startup within the startup and being that first person on the ground in all these different places. Um, So that was uh, a lot of fun. Um, SpeechWorks went public uh, and then eventually sold uh, and there was a big consolidation into what is now Nuance. Um, And so when it became big, um, I wanted a new challenge. And so I went to Bose, uh, learned very quickly uh, that that wasn't for me. Um, So that's when um, I reconnected back uh, with a a college friend, um, Waikit Waikit Lau. Um, my co-founder at Scanscott. So we were, um, really motivated to start a company, um, at that time. It was probably about 2005. Um, and so we're looking around what was growing, what was hockey sticking, and we found podcasts. So, uh, we experimented. Podcasts. podcasts. Um, Wow. So we experimented. This This is 2005, right? 2005. 15 Uh, years ago. Yep. Experimented a lot with various ideas around podcasts. Uh, but we had um, a realization that if audio streaming was big in 2004-2005, online video streaming was going to be even bigger and it was right around the corner. So this was about eight months before YouTube. Uh, so we quickly moved toward wow. video. Yeah. And, um, you know, we we um, became a video monetization, monetization platform for all the video content that was coming online. Um, and so we raised... Uh, a Series A from General Catalyst. They were investing big in video at the time. Um, you know, uh, Brightcove, um, Visible Measures. Um, there were quite a few. Um, and so they were great partners for us. Um, and we also did a B round with uh, Time Warner Investments. Um, over the next four years, we built it to number one slash number two in Comscore in terms of reach with flip-flopping back and forth. Um, And we took revenue, you know, scoring 70 to 100% a year every year uh, To about 20 million Um, and then the board had the idea that uh, We could combine the number one and two companies and go public Uh, So that's what we did. Uh, We merged with tremor in 2011 uh, and we took that public in 2013 Uh, so I had um, uh, one of those unique experiences where we started two guys in the garage Uh, going all the way to um, You know ring the bell in the New York Stock Exchange to being the CTO of a public company. It was a ton of fun Um, There were definitely a lot of ups and downs um, And but plenty of lessons learned Um, and uh, you know, I take all those lessons to make us uh, Here at Anacare to be uh, to be even more successful
0: But what was the like the I mean the video ad market at that point in time like there was none right? so you had to create this market and have companies understand that you could advertise for video like that. So how did you educate, uh, you know, customers to actually purchase
1: ad space? Totally. I mean, so there were uh, a few players in the space Um, there and the space uh, segmented in different ways. Um, There were a lot of players that were focused on getting as much video content as possible and just putting ads against it. Uh, that's a hard sell right because uh, you know you take uh, the, the funny cat video that uh, anybody can upload and it's hard to get png or craft um, to be comfortable around with content like that um, so we try to not play that much in that part of the market instead we focus very much uh, on uh, the premium end of the market so our customers and deals were with people like Viacom um, comedy channel uh much higher quality broadcast level content. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, it became much more of a, hey, your audience is the same audience. Do they watch it on TV and they can watch it online? Uh, it's the same demographic, it's just a different medium. Uh, so, you know, you can, um, you know, extend the reach that you have, you're always looking for more reach, um, you know, just, uh, you know, by, you know, uh, divvying up the budget and spending it more here. So, uh, you know, by focusing, I think, on the premium end of the market, uh, we were able to get people comfortable and make the market for it. Uh, It was uh, it definitely took some work. I mean, you know, it's different budgets. The digital budgets were very different from the TV budgets. Um, But, uh, you know, once we, you know, it it logically flows. Right. Same demographic, same content, just different delivery mechanism. Uh, You know, over time, they became very comfortable
0: with it. Now, Jessica, you started a business while you were in college that ended up getting distribution to national supermarkets, right? So, so what what was the, that business?
2: I mean, it was so random. I did not intend to start a business. Um, this is one of those organic startup stories that just really introduced me uh, to entrepreneurship. But so I always loved baking. You know, baked for my friends' birthdays, for holidays, but didn't think anything of it. But when I was a sophomore in college, I walked into this pizzeria on campus and they were selling banana bread. And it was saran wrapped and it had a $1.69 sign on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, who makes this? I can do so much better. And the owner was like, all right, well, bring it in. So I brought in my big goods, it sold out. And he's like, whoa, bring more in. And after a while, you know, he's just started selling them. And I made a sign out of construction paper and markers. It was called Jessica's Wonders. And the slogan is still my favorite, it was, mm so good it'll make you wonder
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) it was uh
2: you know it's like the ben and jerry's of baked goods really fun flavors personality stories um you know brown university had its first ever entrepreneurship business plan competition this was in 1998 i graduated in 2000 um so i entered it there were 77 teens and i ended up winning with a baked goods business (laughs) it was so (laughs) crazy um and you know, I ended up raising a million dollars my senior year. I had braces. I looked like I was thirteen years old. Um, but we uh, got the attention of the largest chain of supermarkets on the East Coast, and it was Stop and Shop at the time. And you know, gave me te- two test stores, four testers, and then before we knew it, we were in four hundred twenty-five stores. Um, in just a matter of months. And it was just such an incredible experience. It was a lot of hustle, (laughs) you know, but I learned so much like the power of branding, um, you know, supply chain, logistics, and, you know, just aligning yourself with investors for the big term, you know, uh, vision for it.
0: Then you went on to get uh, your MBA from Kellogg. And then, so you then were a brand manager at Kraft Foods. I always love talking to people that worked at Kraft. So which, what was the brand that you were associated with there?
2: Miracle Whip and barbecue sauce. <laughs> uh, you
0: know, Miracle Whip's so good. Uh, oh, such yes, good
2: that tangy zip. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. Uh, you know, I mean, we sold hundreds of millions of pounds of that stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, it was interesting. I purposely stayed in the food industry to kind of get that apples to apples comparison of what it's like to you know, create a startup out of your dorm room, but also to work at a 14, 500. And I actually loved working there, like as big as a part of a big company. Um, I learned how to run a larger PL, you know, how to, you know, um, you know, lead a cross-functional team of R and D and finance and operations and sales. And, you know, and I also learned all the big company politics stuff, um, and the dynamics that happen to get something sold in, um, which I constantly draw upon, even now, because we're working with large companies um, as clients and customers. And so, yeah, I value that experience so much. I was there for about three and a half years.
0: And then you started another company, Babaco. So what, what was Babaco? Because it was a a company that um, ended up being a subscription business. So, so what was the details there? Yeah. Like?
2: Um, someone once told me, they're like, wow, life events happened to you, Jess, and you start a company around it. <laughs> so <laughs> I started it. Um, I realize now it's just my response of what I want to see in the world. Um, so I was pregnant with my first daughter, Kayla, she's now 13. Um, but it really opened my eyes to the world of parenting. Um, and at that time it was when Gerber and all these brands were still very corporate. And I remember looking behind those companies and seeing men in suits all leading these companies to all these new moms, and I was like, "Wait a second, where is that brand voice and authenticity of a mom selling to other moms?" And so it really started there, um, and then I invented, you know, products like self-inflatable play mats and car seat covers, um, and we sold it to big box retailers uh, like Bye Bye Baby and Amazon. And um, but then social media really started to take off. And um, I started seeing this opportunity to directly interact with our end users, uh, especially because we're such a brand in a a community. Um, And instead of selling pallets that you have no idea where they go, uh, we said, how do we get more direct to our consumer? And so we got into Accelerate and Techstars in Chicago, and that program really helped me pivot to a subscription-based business. And so we said, okay, what do people and parents need on an ongoing monthly basis? And we're like activities, (laughs) they need something to do. And so we had a whole box of different activities with a different theme every month. And so um, that's kind of what led to the pivot. And again, it was really starting with what do, and what do our moms need? What do our parents need? And that's kind of how it came about.
0: So when you were just starting Babaco and you were starting to engage with consumers, you realized that uh, YouTube was a place where you could start to build that voice and that brand. This is going back. This is you know thousand seven, two thousand eight, or whenever you started your first video. So how did you come up with that concept? Because it's not what YouTube is now, where you know people make a living, you know, broadcasting their life as a YouTuber. And right. what was it like doing that first video and uploading it?
2: Well, so. I think it really started with this insight that moms are typically home with new babies um, and they're stuck at home. And so we wanted to do all these in-person events, but we're like, they can't get out of the house. (laughs) And so how do we reach them and just authentically communicate and connect with them? And um, I remember actually, it was Gary Vaynerchuk that inspired me even back then. This is way before Really? Yeah, so he was one of our angel investors of Babaco. I remember reading an article about him, and um, it was so fascinating how he made all those wine videos, yep. and um, I watched them, and I what I loved about it, that it wasn't so overly produced, right. and I felt like I got to know him, and this is, again, before he is what he is today, and um, I just uh, kind of emailed him, and we hopped on the phone, and he was like, all right, I got five minutes. What do you have for me? And I was like, oh gosh, okay, thing Martha Stewart for baby, you know? And then we um, turned that five-minute call into a 45-minute call. And I was like, you have to meet with me. And we connected. And I really, um he was really a big inspiration to me to just be like, just put it out there. Connect, you know, um, if you can connect in person, this is how you can scale it. Um, And go into people's homes. And it really worked. We, I mean, it's, those videos are still online. Um, but we did videos on everything from being a mompreneur to, you know, how do you make Play Doh at home? And we just got a lot of reach from that and engagement. And it was just, um, it was really authentic and great.
0: It was fun. I, I checked out some of your super early videos. That, <laughs> uh, it was just fun because it, it totally was. Like you, you could tell it's like this is not produced, like where you kind of started to get more production. but. Uh, it was just, I was watching. I'm like, this is impressive that you had the foresight to do that. And uh, I didn't know. So Gary View was the inspiration. That's so cool.
2: Yeah. And I think we're going to continue to do that um, even with Care family caregivers, because even more so they're mm-hmm. isolated in the home and the connection is so great and people don't talk about it. And so we're going to use video a lot as we um, really seek out to connect with them.
0: So the company was acquired by Barefoot Books, and then you, you continued on post-acquisition as, as president.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, well, let's kind of fast-forward the clock now to what you're both up to now, Ionicare, yeah. which, uh, as I highlighted before, like, um, you know, a few years ago now, my, my dad had a major stroke. He lives in Florida um all alone my sister lives in new hampshire i'm in pennsylvania so we get a phone call in the middle of the night saying you know he's getting airlifted the Hampden general hospital and then right away my sister and i are trading off going back and forth you know to the airport handing you know car keys as we're passing each other's gate so um that's my own personal story of how i related to what you guys are doing but talk about you know your business and then the does it. Ayana is an acronym, which um, is pretty powerful too. So talk about what you guys are up to.
2: Thanks for sharing that, you know, about your own story, Keith, because it's it's one of those things that, um, until you've really gone through it, you don't fully understand all that's included with family caregiving. But that's one of our missions at Care is to really raise the awareness so everyone understands what it really is. Because it's one of those things where every single one of us is being to be touched by caregiving in some shape or form. We're either going to be caregivers ourselves or we're going to need caregiving. And so it's one of the most important things in life. So Um, But the way Ionica really started was, uh, you know, my mom had pancreatic cancer for seven and a half years. And um, when the cancer came back for the third time, her body just had nothing else to give. I think she was like about 95 pounds. And um, so my mom and dad, um, uh, you know, moved in with me from from New Jersey to Boston and moved in with, with my kids. And I was always a working mom of three kids, but it was the first time in my life where I quit my job to become her full-time caregiver. And so I was thrust into that caregiving role of navigating all of her medical care, performing all the nursing duties. I was draining her stomach several times a day. Um, I was feeding her and bathing her, eventually carrying her. And uh, it was the hardest and most loneliest time In my life Um, and then she eventually passed away in my home as she did in home hospice on June 30th of 2017 Um, and in my deep grief I remember it was pretty um, right after she passed away I was super frustrated I was so frustrated because as a consumer entrepreneur and tech entrepreneur I knew that this could be better and I was mad that not enough people were working on this very important problem Um, and so we were just like what can we do and so I, you know, I, I was talking to Steve and so we started talking about this and
1: um... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I met Jessica when she was caring for her mom and it really resonated because um, you know, my own family had a really long journey caring for my grandfather with Parkinson's. Um, and so when Jessica was ready to come back uh, to onto the next big thing, I, I tried really hard to recruit Jessica um, to my own startup, uh, but she really opened my eyes to the problem and opportunity here. Uh, so we started digging in together really deeply. Um, and, you know, we saw how technology can really help here. Yeah.
2: And so, like, the way we define the problem is that, you know, one out of seven people in the US alone are diagnosed with a type of chronic condition or illness where they become reliant on a caregiver. Wow. Uh, so we're talking about Alzheimer's, cancer, stroke, uh, debilitating heart failure, mental illness, disabilities. And when we often think about these conditions, we tend to focus on the surgery, you know, what the doctors say, what's happening in the hospital, uh, but over 90 percent of the actual time being cared for is happening in the home, not in the hospital. and they're typically cared for by family caregivers who are unsupported, unpaid, and untrained. <laughs> And so there are 43.5 million family caregivers in the U.S. alone. Um, they do 24.4 hours of caregiving on top of full-time jobs. And, you know, if you actually added up all the hours that family caregivers provide, it equates to $470 billion worth of care every wow. single year. That's yes. staggering. It's staggering. Um, and so it just shows that without family caregivers, our entire healthcare system And society would absolutely collapse, and yet we don't support them. And so, I think for us, the aha moment was that there are thousands of resources and services that actually already exist. So, it's not just about coming up with just another ride service or meal service, they actually are out there. Um, But you know, it's really highly fragmented and not curated in a very user-friendly way to empower the caregiver in the home. And so that's really our mission. It's to create technology and change our culture with movements to empower, encourage and equip family caregivers as they navigate all the care that's happening in the home. And as they live out, what we say is one of the greatest acts of love.
0: Talk talk about the product, Steve, like, like what does the product do? How does it work? Sure. Um, I do want to, you
1: asked about the name earlier, Uh, let me tell you a little about the name and then we can shift to product. But um, from our uh, personal experiences and research, we knew one of the biggest problems caregivers face is that they feel really alone, they're really isolated. And it's a journey that shouldn't ever be done alone. So a core premise of the company from day one is we will help people feel not alone and to help them feel more supported. So we played a lot with the concept of not alone, you're not alone, I am not alone. All of those were a bit too wordy, but then we had this aha moment that the acronym for I am not alone is this really pleasant sounding name, IANA. So that's the first part. Um, And then we had uh, another core premise that the company, um, you know, we wanted to start a new way to care that's beyond traditional clinical care. And so when we found the domain for Iana care being available, that was it. So we're IanaCare. there's clinical care, there's hospice care, there are many different types of care. We are creating I am not alone care to make sure that caregivers don't go through this alone. Um, so I just wanted to share that yeah, about, about the name. That's powerful. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so a on the, on the, bit on the product, I mean, people are thrust into caregiving for a loved one. Uh, Always unexpectedly. Uh, When that happens, uh, they just don't know what they don't know. No one ever prepares for this. I mean, why would you? I mean, just, um, you know, I'm sure it was very much a surprise when you went through it for your dad. Um, So our product steps in when you're thrust into that. Um, It is an interactive navigator to guide caregivers through the whole journey. So we tell them what they don't know, and we tell them how to get support. So we put the right resources in front of them when they need it. Uh, We started with a free app that helps mobilize friends and family uh, to provide practical and emotional help. uh, And we're working on layering in other uh, other layers of support. So the way the current product works is you as a caregiver download the app and you set up your own personal support team. You can do that right from your contact list. Um, Anyone that's ever asked you for help, uh, you can just tell them, hey, join my IANA care team. Once you have that team, you can then ask for very specific help, so meals, rides, respite care, childcare, uh, pet care, errands like groceries. Uh, those requests go out via push notification to all your team members. They can then click uh, on the notification and they see in one screen everything that you, you need help with uh, and they can click, uh, I got this. It then goes on everybody's calendars, so there's no need for any translation. Um, We also built a private communication feed that only goes out to your team members so that you can get emotional support because we found people needed that outlet. They didn't want to share it in public places like Facebook. And we found this really powerful synergy between keeping your team updated and the supporters on your team being inspired to volunteer and offer help. Uh, So that was really awesome to see. Uh, We put in a lot of Uh, thought into empowering supporters on the team, because it's often the supporters that ignite that engine uh, of support. Um, So I have to say, I mean, in my career, this has been the most rewarding product I've worked on. We have thousands of users using it. We've done no paid marketing. It's all been word of mouth. And people are getting the support in ways they never thought was possible. People write us uh, unsolicited to tell us how much it's meant to them. Users have told us every time they hear that buzz on the phone from the notification, it actually feels like an actual hug. So it's been really, really amazing. Um, You know, we know that friends and family are the first responders, but it's not the full solution. So what we're working on now is building out all the other layers of support uh, from professional resources and other services uh, right now. Yeah, it's
2: fascinating. It's like when we really dug into it, we realized feeling like a burden is the number one reason why help is not exchanged. And so our guiding principle was how do we utilize technology to lift that burden? Um, and so it's yeah, and I'm, it's it's a tall call because it's like a social change, but uh, you know we're starting to see that it's working, and people are getting help with laundry and grocery shopping and yard work. It's pretty amazing.
0: And you're you're wearing a, a t-shirt that has the words "just show up." So what what, yes. it, what is the "just show up" movement? <laughs>
2: So, just show up is just all about the role of that supporter, Uh, and we realize it's it's really critical. It's that friend, that family member, that neighbor who really wants to just step up and tangibly help. Um, And so, this movement is really to do two major things: it's to bring awareness to all that's included with the family caregiving. What is it? What really is it? And what does that feel like and look like? And so, we do a lot of stories. storytelling and sharing because awareness is the first step to any type of action. Um, And then the second thing is, um, you know, once your eyes are opened up to it, we're like, can you just show up? That's the call to action. You know, however big or small, you know, for people who need that extra boost of support, can you just commit to one small act of support? Drop off a meal, go grocery shopping, give a ride to the doctor's appointment, take care of the dog. And so what we did is we created these t-shirts that are simple, but, you know, we think are pretty cool. Keith, will send you one.
1: Nice. (laughs) Um,
2: And then all profits go into a shared pool of funds, and then we give it away to family caregivers that our community nominates. Um, And so we give gift cards to grocery stores, we pay for a month's worth of medication, um, snow plowing for the season, and so we, we, I mean, we really know that this won't solve all of their problems, that it really just ensures that you're not alone in this and this is like a big hug from our community that's here to support you. Um, and so just yesterday, we selected our first recipient. Her name is Caitlin. Um, she's waiting for a heart transplant. Her husband, Ben, is her caregiver. Um and so they've been using the app and getting so much help uh, from their 20 plus supporters. Um and so she was nominated and we gave her a $250 kind of gift card. And what I love about this is that it's not, it's not a company thing, it's our community thing. Like we're actually showing all the faces of people who purchased these t-shirts and said, you guys are the ones that gave her $250 to lessen the burden. Not us, it's you guys. We're just the vehicle and like that's just our mission.
0: Now, like as we're recording this, I think I mentioned before we're in, you know, COVID-19 pandemic yeah. cycle right now, which uh, obviously affects everybody. It affects every industry. It affects so many different uh, aspects of our lives these days. Um, now, your product, one would think that, that your product is incredibly helpful right now. Like it's it's a product yeah. that is is a necessity. So talk about the current situation and how that, you know, is, is impacting Ionicare.
2: Yeah. I mean, COVID-19 really accelerated the awareness and the attention that I feel like everyone who has been part of family giving has been beating on our drums to get. So it's so interesting. Like it did not create caregiving, but it just opened everyone's eyes to the people who are most vulnerable to COVID-19. And it's our elderly, um, you know, our people who are elderly in our communities and our family members, people who have a chronic condition. um, And so It's really increased the demand. Um, And, you know, as things are shutting down, like government programs, social services, commercial, like they're all kind of figuring out what to do. Um, And so the only way to really solve this right now is through our community. It's through us individually getting out of our homes in a safe way, but how do we like care without contact? How do we send groceries to your door um, without even touching you? You know, how do we emotionally check in with you and make sure that you're okay, that you're not alone. Um, and so more than any other time, I feel like this is where supporters and this Just Show Up movement really counts And because there are no other solutions that can effectively address it right now.
0: Now, what's the plan for the business side, right? So how do you plan on, you know, you obviously need uh, consumers to use the app and to get traction, but how do you plan on you know, building a business around it?
2: Yeah, so we work with uh, employers and health plans to support their working caregivers. Um, So, again, the stats are staggering. It's one out of six employees are caregivers. That's not a projection or a prediction. It's actually a fact today. And with COVID-19, it's even more than that, right? Um, And then one out of three family caregivers leave their work because it becomes just so overwhelming because there's such a lack of support. Um, And so it's important for employees to support their employees to decrease, you know, Quitting and attrition and decrease um, absenteeism, but then also increase their overall health and productivity. And then for health plans, you know, it's proven that family caregivers experience twice the level of stress, depression, health issues because they're neglecting their own health. And um, it's crazy, but up to 30% uh, of family caregivers pass away before the person that they're caring for. I think that is just so tragic wow. on all levels. Yes. That's so tragic. Because wow. they're they're often not healthy themselves, but they're spending all their time and energy taking care of this person, and so it's such an underserved group of people. And so we find that the way to start is are these employers and health plans who have a shared responsibility for people's health and well being, um, and so we're creating an effective solution and navigation for that.
0: So uh, you've both have built companies, um, you know, from the ground up. So what advice would you give to founders on, uh, building, you know, like hire the hiring side, right? So building out your employee base, you know, cause each stage of a company has different, you know, kind of people to help you grow it. You know, Steve, you took a company from early stages to merging to an IPO, uh, Jessica, you built a company that was acquired. So what advice would you give to founders on, uh, you know, hiring people at different stages of a business?
2: Yeah. I mean, I can start, I mean, I think, definitely, you know, having the skill set is almost a given like you. I think it's first um, as a team and as a company, you have to identify uh, what do you need to kind of get to that next level. Right. Um, but then, you know, it the person has to be a good person with character and integrity. Um, and so you can see that through references and relationships that they've had over the years um, and then willingness to, you know, just experience. Um, kind of working at an early stage venture. I think it's really unique. Like being an early stage marketer is very different than being a marketer at a fortune 500. And, uh, you know, just the team's dynamic is different. The rhythms of workflows are unique. The pressure is higher. Um, and so we really look at stage based fit as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's kind of you know really what we focus on initially.
1: Yeah, I agree totally with that. I mean, I think we're, looking more generalist when we're smaller because we have to wear so many different hats. But definitely, you know, when, uh, you know, we're a $300 million company, we definitely needed a lot of specialists. Uh, so there's that continuum and transition that happens as the company scales, um, you know, which is it's really important to realize from the beginning. Um, you know, but I think right now at this current stage, uh, we are, we're looking for people, we have, you know, small number of people needing to do so many different things. It's important People have the range to be able to do, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, perhaps outside of, you know, what they're typically, you know, what their like gen- their specialty one thing is.
2: Yeah, and we're currently hiring. <laughs> we're yeah. hiring out our product team uh, to really make it world class, and um, as well as we're going to be hiring our sales. We hired Josh as our head of marketing. He's been amazing. Yeah, um, he's, he's so- yeah, he's phenomenal. And we're so lucky to have him. Um, and so, yeah, we're really excited to be at the at the point, um, especially during COVID-19. We don't take that for granted that we are um, hiring a team to really address kind of what's needed in the world right now.
0: And you both have raised uh, outside funding. So what what advice would you give to founders on uh, you know the fundraising process?
2: Fundraising, I think, is so much about relationships. Um, I think the mistake that entrepreneurs make is that it's a transactional. I need money, or like I have this idea, uh, will you fund it? Um, and instead, I think it's so important to find people that you want. It's it's finding partners. You're built. You know, you're building a partnership and their expertise and their role is on the funding side, Um, but it has to be just as strategic as we see our sales and operations and branding. Um, It's not something that's tacked on at the end of how do we fund it? Um, And so building relationships with our investors is key. Um, Even as you pitch, if if you're pitching and it's the first time you're talking to them, that's that's hard to do because in such a short time, um, you have to build all this trust and convince them of everything. But instead, if you build these relationships over time, by the time you're actually pitching they're just like oh wow you're finally ready to work together um so that's my biggest advice for for how to approach funding got
0: it steve do you have anything to add to that or no i mean there are
1: so many advice we can give to fundraising but i think that what jessica just said uh is the biggest one um you know it's absolutely relationship uh and uh so if if you know, there's one piece of advice to focus on. I would focus exactly to what she said, uh, making sure you build that relationship with key strategic partners that you think uh, are the right ones for your for your startup.
2: Yeah, we just closed our seed round, actually. So we're for the first time on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, awesome. But yeah, we have incredible investors like Slow Ventures, uh, Indicator, Founder Collective, QBall, Entree Capital, and then our angel Rajiv Kumar, who is, the chief medical officer of Virgin Pulse. And so um, it really is that great team of partners that uh, really believe in this problem and believe in, you know, we're grateful that they believe in us and solving it.
0: That's great. Well, congratulations on the on the seed seed round. Those are amazing firms to partner up with. Yeah. So what would you guys recommend for um, uh, books, podcasts, or I've even thrown in an extra layer because of, you know, people are like, I know I, I don't watch a, lot, a ton of TV, but you know, since COVID-19 and quarantine times. I've been uh, watching a lot more shows that I've been meaning to pick up. So, um, I just finished watching season three of Ozark, which, uh, my wife and I went through all three seasons and wow. What Is a show. Good?
2: I just started that yesterday. <laughs> oh,
0: Jessica, literally like I, 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 I couldn't stop watching it. Like it, it's so good. Like the first episode just brings you right in. So, yes. it's
2: just- so I just finished the first episode and I was running while I was doing it and I ran for 45 minutes, which I never do. So <laughs> that was really cool. So I'm excited that it's good.
0: Yeah, yeah it's it's three seasons worth checking check out. Check that out. Okay. I, cool.
2: I mean, I love podcasts. Um, I'm obsessed with them. Uh yours is a good one, Keith. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love, I don't know. For me, I think I love hearing stories. So how I built this, of course, is one of my yeah,
0: favorite.
2: Um is it really a masters of scale is great because I think it yep. goes down into Green this.
0: Hoffman. Yep.
2: Um, I do love uh, the pitch, uh, the gimlet um podcast, the pitch, because I love hearing how other entrepreneurs do a good job and sometimes flub in their pitches. Like it's you learn a lot from it and it's so real. So I relate to it. Um, and then of course, you know, and stay true to Gary Vee's motivational kind of talking in my ear um of just how to think it's about It's extraordinary
0: how much content I know he has a team, but he still is the face of all this content that he produces every single day. It's amazing.
2: It's amazing. He is the real deal.
0: Yeah. Even like his going to um uh, yard sales and finding bargains and flipping them. And he, like, I'm like, he's got pre- people producing that content too, which you could tell that's just a passion. He loves, you know, finding a deal and reselling it, you know? Yeah, my
2: friend actually followed that advice and I think he made like 5,000 one month. I was like, what? So I was like, this stuff really works. <laughs> uh,
0: what are you checking out, Steve?
1: Well, for shows, I have to mention Silicon Valley. I mean, it yeah, just it strikes me as. I mean, it's, it's so funny, but it's, 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 it's also incredibly it's so true. realistic. Uh, it's so true. So they t- they did a great job of, um, you know, putting in the startup and entrepreneur and VC dynamic into it. Um, so I, I definitely have to recommend that. I think for books, I, I you know, I'm, this is going to date me, um, you know, but, uh, you know, I love the classic. Jeffrey Moore books about, uh, you know, crossing the chasm and Inside the tornado, you know, f- talking about the different phases of startup and recognizing where you are and, you know, what are the right things to do in each of those phases? Um, so, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Classics like that.
0: Cool. Well, Jessica, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional backgrounds and obviously the very meaningful work you're doing with I- Care. and, uh, you know, best of luck and continued success.